there, folks. Welcome to the first ever episode of Paleopathology with Pays. This podcast is a brand new podcast dedicated to discussing and identifying different diseases and conditions that can be found in human bone. So we're going to be talking a lot about the archaeological record, the history of disease, the progression of disease, how disease and conditions affect bone and development of bone. It's going to be a great time. We're going to talk about lots of different diseases. So welcome to the first episode. I am your host, Paisley Stedman, hence Paleopathology with Pays. Pays is my nickname. And I'm a second year student at Loyola University in Chicago studying anthropology on a pre-med track with a minor in women's studies and gender studies. So very excited to be doing this podcast. I'm currently taking Dr. Ann Grauer's paleopathology class at Loyola and loving it. So I'm very excited to get into today's first episode, which is dedicated to multiple myeloma in the archaeological record. So we are going to get started on our discussion of multiple myeloma, but before we do so, I do want to give a quick introduction to cancer, as multiple myeloma is a type of cancer. So what is cancer? Cancer is defined as a malignant neoplasm. A neoplasm simply means new growth. Neoplasms, or as they are colloquially known, tumors, are found in many different individuals for many different reasons. Tumors are basically characterized by being uncontrolled cell growth that results in a mass of cells that would not normally be there, but usually what happens is that the cells that are part of the tumor have mechanisms for cell division and cell death and cell survival that are somehow messed up. So the cell that has been messed up in some way is dividing out of control and all of the other cells that come out of that cell are dividing out of control and they're not dying like they normally should. So we get this growth that occurs in the body that shouldn't be there. So that is what a neoplasm is. Now there are two main types of neoplasms. The first that I'm going to mention is a benign neoplasm. Benign neoplasms are not the same thing as cancer. Benign tumors are cell, a mass of cells that are not necessarily dangerous for human beings. They're not necessarily going to threaten someone's life. They don't invade the surrounding tissues and they cannot move to other parts of the body. Those are the two most important things to know about benign tumors. Malignant tumors or malignant neoplasms, on the other hand, are defined as being cancerous. So benign tumors are not cancerous, malignant neoplasms are cancerous. So what characterizes a malignant neoplasm or a malignant tumor? Malignant tumors are characterized by rapid growth and proliferation of abnormal cells that can destroy surrounding normal tissues. They don't obey normal growth regulating mechanisms like the cell cycle. This is similar to benign tumors, but in this case, they're even more messed up, so they can get past a lot of different mechanisms, which allows them to invade normal tissues nearby. They're also poorly differentiated from the surrounding tissues, which means that they are extremely hard to take out, let's say, if you're having a tumor surgically removed. But the most important thing to note about cancerous growths or malignant neoplasms is that they can metastasize. 
Metastasis is that ability to invade other parts of the body that I mentioned earlier. So that is the word that we use. We use metastasis to describe the ability of cancerous cells from a malignant neoplasm to break off from the, prim the primary tumor and travel in the bloodstream to other parts of the body where they get lodged and they form new malignant neoplasms that can again invade other tissues, destroy other tissues, and continue to spread. So we have a primary malignant neoplasm that can metastasize to other parts of the body, causing problems all over. So that is a quick overview of cancer. We discussed benign neoplasms. They're not really a problem. They're just kind of masses of cells that are there. They're not causing any destruction necessarily. And then we have malignant neoplasms that are cancer. So these are the ones that can spread to other parts of the body and invade surrounding tissues. Next, we're going to get into specifics of multiple myeloma. First and foremost, myeloma means marrow tumor. So multiple myeloma, in the simplest terms, is a malignant neoplasm in the bone marrow. Multiple myeloma is also known as Collar's disease. So what happens when someone has multiple myeloma? Multiple myeloma affects bone marrow plasma cells. And a plasma cell is a type of immune system cell. Plasma cells are, in the simplest terms, they are daughter cells of important cells called white blood cells or lymphocytes that circulate in our blood. And these plasma cells will have the same types of proteins that the white blood cell that they came from will have. These proteins are called antibodies. And antibodies are really, 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 really important for our body's ability to fight off specific pathogens. So when we encounter a pathogen for the first time, a B lymphocyte, the type of precursor cell that gives rise to plasma cells, they are a type of white blood cell, a B lymphocyte will recognize or will be matched up to a pathogen if it has an antibody on its cell surface that matches a protein called an antigen on the surface of the pathogen. And then we make plasma cells that are, like I said, short-lived clones of these B lymphocytes that have soluble antibodies that match the antibody from the B lymphocyte that matches the antigen on the pathogen. And these plasma cells will just make tons of soluble antibodies that are able to circulate in our blood and attack any of the pathogens that it will bind to. So any of the pathogens that have the antigen that will bind to the antibodies that it is releasing. So the antibodies created by the plasma cells will destroy the pathogen. It's important to note that the plasma cell itself does not destroy the pathogen. So plasma cells. We kind of know what they are now. They're part of the immune system. It's important to note that they actually do live in the bone marrow and they are supposed to be temporary. They're not supposed to stick around for a long period of time. So what does this mean for multiple myeloma? Well, multiple myeloma, like I mentioned, is when a bone marrow plasma cell becomes mutated in such a way that it becomes cancerous. So it will create a malignant neoplasm in the bone marrow. Multiple myeloma is the second most common blood cancer and accounts for 13% of all blood cancers, but interestingly, it only accounts for 1% of all cancers, so it's actually pretty darn rare today. 
Multiple myeloma is incurable, though we can treat it with various forms of cancer treatment. It is also the most frequent cancer to involve bone. Multiple myeloma has crazy effects on bone. It's actually astounding how much it affects bone. And I wanted to take some time to describe what a plasma cell is and where these are found in bones, in the marrow, in the middle of long bones, because it's really important for understanding how the mutated plasma cells will grow into a malignant neoplasm that will end up destroying bone in a really characteristic way. A huge part of what makes these myelomal plasma cells really, really dangerous for the body is that instead of producing the antibodies that they should be producing, they instead produce monoclonal proteins, also known as myeloma proteins or M proteins. I'm going to refer to them as M proteins. And these M proteins are mutated forms of antibodies that are produced by the myelomal plasma cells. They are extremely important for understanding why multiple myeloma is such a terrible affliction and why it affects the body in the ways that it does. We will get to M proteins a little bit more later, but now we're going to get into what causes multiple myeloma specifically. So kind of moving on from the introductory information and how humans develop multiple myeloma. So what causes multiple myeloma and how do humans develop multiple myeloma? Unfortunately, the cause of multiple myeloma is very poorly understood. In general, most cancers, almost all that we know of, are caused by mutation of proteins that are crucial for regulating normal cell function. So I mentioned in the beginning that cancer cells often have ways to get around the mechanisms that control their division, their death, and their survival. So normal cells um, that are not cancerous will go through the cell cycle to regulate their division, their replication, their death, and their survival. So there are lots of molecules circulating in our body that will tell our cells, hey, this cell's doing what it's supposed to be doing. It needs to stick around so it's going to survive. But the cell also has ways of knowing when something is wrong. So if there's something that is happening in the cell, that is going to make it ineffective at doing what it's supposed to do or it's going to make it cancerous, the cell often has ways of saying, no, the cell needs to die. We're not going to let this continue. Unfortunately, in the case of cancer, there is something wrong and the cell is supposed to say something's wrong, something's mutated and it's, we're not going to work right, but cancer mutates the proteins that tell the cell to die. So cancer is getting around a lot of the regulatory functions that will allow this cell to continue to grow and divide and not die, becoming basically immortalized so that it can continue to grow and form a malignant neoplasm. There are substances that we know of that cause cancer, and these are known as carcinogens. Carcinogens are everywhere. They are in tons of things. They have been around since the beginning of time. Carcinogens include blue and ultraviolet light, solar radiation, radon gas, heavy metals, certain viruses actually can cause cancers, and chemicals in smoke from fires, as well as from cigarettes or other nicotine products. A lot of these things can cause cancer. 
human-created carcinogens include pesticides and herbicides or other chemicals, and ionizing radiation and harmful solvents can also be carcinogens. So harmful solvents are really important for understanding why individuals, you know, that are exposed to a lot of chemicals, maybe from working in a hair salon or working in an auto body shop or working as a mechanic or working as a construction worker, um, why we see a lot of these harmful solvents end up see, end up being carcinogenic. So carcinogens can impact the cell's ability to accumulate these mutations that are needed for them to grow out of control and not die. But it can also be caused by chromosomal abnormalities, especially taking parts of one chromosome and switching it with another part of another chromosome. And in doing so, you express genes that are going to be really important for creating cancerous proteins that allow cells, again, to grow out of control and not die. There are some specific risk factors for multiple myeloma, and this is specific to multiple myeloma. The carcinogens that I listed are true for all cancers, and like I said, they increase the susceptibility to cancer. But there are certain risk factors for multiple myeloma, including increasing age. This is likely due to the fact that the longer you're around, the more carcinogenic substances you're exposed to, the more time your DNA has to accumulate the mutations necessary for a cell to continue to divide and become a malignant neoplasm. Interestingly, being male puts you at risk more than being female does for multiple myeloma. Being black, especially shown to be true in African Americans, um, if you are African American, you are twice as likely to um, be diagnosed with multiple myeloma and you are more likely to have a younger onset of disease. So you are more likely to get the disease at a younger age than your white counterparts. There is a role for susceptibility genes. So having a genetic background for multiple myeloma or other cancers, having a family history of cancer, these are all possible ways that an individual can accumulate the mutations necessary to initiate onset of multiple myeloma. So susceptibility genes, we know that that's probably a factor. We're just not entirely sure what the underlying mechanisms are, but we do know that some individuals are more susceptible just because of the genes that they have than others to develop multiple myeloma. Interestingly, obesity is also linked to higher risk of multiple myeloma, though again, we're not really sure why. Having AIDS may be related to higher risk for multiple myeloma. Um, this is really interesting to note because AIDS is a disease related to the immune system and immune function, and multiple myeloma affects plasma cells, which are also part of the immune system. Um, studies have also found that diet may be a factor, though again, we're still not entirely sure um, how much of an effect this is, and possibly immun immunological disorders can affect susceptibility to multiple myeloma. Um, again, just like in the AIDS example, plasma cells are immune cells, and immunological disorders will somehow mess up the immune system, so that could be a possible link as well. And I think one of the most interesting things that I came across in, in the research that I did to prepare for this podcast was that there is a higher incidence of multiple myeloma in developed countries. Though, again, like most of these risk factors, we're not really sure why. We don't know 
if there's a specific cultural factor at play, we're really just not sure why this happens. Interestingly, tobacco use and alcohol consumption are not associated with increased risk of multiple myeloma, which is really surprising because we have heard about, you know, in other cancers, tobacco use and alcohol consumption being huge risk factors, but not the same with multiple myeloma. One of the most important risk factors that I'd like to discuss is a relatively benign condition called monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, or MGUS. I'm going to call this benign condition MGUS. MGUS is a huge risk factor for multiple myeloma. Almost every source of information about multiple myeloma will mention MGUS. MGUS is an abnormal is a condition in which an abnormal M protein, the same protein that is created by multiple myeloma plasma cells, is formed in the bone marrow and circulates in the blood. And you're thinking, okay, why is this a benign condition if it's creating the same protein that multiple myeloma plasma cells create? MGUS only allows a very small amount of M protein to be released into the body. So it's not dangerous. It usually is just something that happens. And it's associated with a rate of progression to multiple myeloma of 1% per year. So that's not very much. As you can tell, 1% per year, if you have MGUS, every year you are 1% more likely to have multiple myeloma. But... Almost uh, most cases, excuse me, most cases of MGUS do not progress to multiple myeloma. Interestingly, almost all cases of multiple myeloma evolve from MGUS, which is considered a precursor stage. So if you have MGUS, basically this is what it means. If you have MGUS, you don't necessarily have a huge risk of multiple myeloma. Like I said, it's only 1% per year, but if you have multiple myeloma, it's almost certain that you had MGUS before you were diagnosed with multiple myeloma. This is really, really interesting, but we still don't know a lot about what causes MGUS, what the risk factors for MGUS are, and how the progression from MGUS to multiple myeloma happens. There's still a lot more research that needs to be done, but obviously MGUS is a really, really important subject for explaining and describing and, and deciding what multiple, multiple myeloma is, how it happens, and maybe understanding MGUS can help us understand how to treat multiple myeloma in the future. So all of these things taken into consideration, the risk factors, the carcinogenic substances, environmental factors, genetic factors, all of these come together and result in the genetic changes and mutations that lead to the immortalization of a myeloma propagating cell. The immortalized cell then acquires additional genetic mutations over time, thus leading to the clinically recognized features of myeloma. So there are tons of factors that basically decide if you're going to get multiple myeloma. There has to be, the most important thing to know is that you need more than one mutation in your, a plasma cell in your bone marrow than to get multiple myeloma. It's not just because you have one thing messed up in the cell cycle regulation or apoptosis regulation and that's it for you. You need tons of mutations in the same cell um, over and over and over again um, in different proteins that affect a cell's ability to be immortalized. Because many proteins in many different pathways 
collaborate to change the normal biology of the plasma cell. Changing the cell so it becomes cancerous. Okay, so now that we have described cancer, risk factors for multiple myeloma, different things that contribute to causing the mutations in bone marrow plasma cells that are necessary for progressing to the condition we call multiple myeloma or bone marrow cancer. We are going to discuss how multiple myeloma affects the human body, specifically how it affects the bones, because that is the most important topic in a paleopathology podcast, so that we can then take how multiple myeloma affects the human bones, and then we can identify multiple myeloma in the archaeological record. So now that we've got a lot of the introductory stuff out of the way, now that we've gone over what cancer is, what the risk factors for multiple myeloma are, how these cells accumulate mutations necessary to become cancerous, and um, discussed kind of the immortalization of these cells, we're going to get into specifically how it affects the human body, which is my favorite part because we get to learn about some really awesome cell biology info about these plasma cells and how they interact with other cells that are present in the bone marrow and in the bones. So in the context of multiple myeloma, we are talking about these plasma cells. A normal plasma cell would head to the bone marrow after the pathogen is destroyed and the immune response is halted, and they usually, the normal plasma cells, will undergo rapid apoptosis, which is cell death, or they can migrate to specialized areas of the bone marrow where they can hang out and survive as long-lived plasma cells that provide immunological memory. So after the pathogen, pathogen is destroyed, they go back to the bone marrow, they're either destroyed or they migrate to areas where they are stored to provide immunological memory, excuse me. It seems that competition for access to these long-term storage areas in the bone marrow is important for understanding why these abnormal plasma cells become immortalized and end up creating malignant neoplasms. So we're not entirely sure what the mechanisms there are about this competition for access to these important storage areas in the bone marrow are, but we do know that when these abnormal plasma cells are immortalized, they interact with mesenchymal stem cells, and these cells hang out in the bone marrow. They're normally supposed to be there, and they are important for making and repairing skeletal tissues. These multiple myelomal cells will interact with these mesenchymal stem cells to create an environment that is favorable for their continued immortalization. So this interaction actually causes the release of bone resorption factors, resulting in osteoclast activation. What the heck does that mean? It means that when these multiple myelomal abnormal plasma plasma cells interact with these important stem cells that are necessary for making and repairing skeletal tissues, this interaction between these two types of cells causes the release of proteins that will tell osteoclasts, which are cells in bone that cause bone to be resorbed or taken away or destroyed so that it can be replaced by new bone, it tells these proteins that are released from this interaction tell the osteoclast to activate. So it turns on this interaction between the plasma cells and the mesenchymal stem cells tells osteoclasts to start breaking down bone. So whenever the tumor, the malignant neoplasm, touches the bone, these factors will tell nearby osteoclasts to start just breaking down the bone, just breaking it down without really any reason other than the multiple myeloma cell says to do so, and its interaction with the mesenchymal stem cell allows it to do so. Interestingly, 
the multiple myelomal cells also produce proteins that decrease osteoblast activity. And osteoblasts are the cells normally present in bone that are responsible for building back new bone. So normally in our bones, we've got this interaction between osteoclasts that break down old bone that needs to be replaced and reinforced and osteoblasts that rebuild bone so that it's stronger in places that it needs to be stronger in. So you've got this normal interaction and it usually results in net bone, no net change to how much bone is there. But when you've got these multiple myelomal cells telling osteoclasts to destroy bone and they're telling osteoblasts not to build back bone, all you have is net bone loss, which is one of the hallmarks of multiple myeloma. It seems that simple contact with the myeloma mass causes bone lesions throughout the skeleton that are caused by taking away bone and not building it back. These bone lesions that are caused by contact with the myeloma mass are especially going to affect highly vascularized areas in the skeleton, specifically the vertebral column, that is the main one, as well as the ribs and the pelvis, the femur, and the skull. If advanced, the jaw, clavicles, sternum, and humerus can also be involved. So this the impact of these myelomal masses is huge and they affect bones all over the body, especially the highly vascularized bones that I just talked about. These bone lesions caused by contact with the myelomal mass appear as small ovoid or circular lesions, usually relatively uniform in size, and are sharp with well-circumscribed margins. So they're not super random. They're almost always circular or look like little ovals. They're really well-defined. They've got sharp edges due to the fact that bone is being taken away and there is no osteoblastic reaction happening on the edges of this lesion. So bone's being taken away and nothing is being done to build the bone back. So there's a total absence of osteoblastic uh, reaction. These lesions are usually 5 to 20 millimeters across, and they are sharply demarcated, like I said. It looks almost like the bones have been punched out with a punched, like a hole puncher. Um, some um, individuals that have done studies about multiple myeloma in the archaeological record may also describe the lesions as looking like the skeleton is being as being moth-eaten. So it's really bad. It almost looks like when you look at a picture of bones that have been affected by multiple myeloma, it almost looks like these bones are like Swiss cheese. They've got holes all over them. It's, it's really, really devastating. And it, it compromises the structural, or integ structural integrity of bones. So really, really bad stuff. Because the structural integrity of the bone due to all of these these circular lesions all out all over the bones with no new bone being formed fractures are really 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 common especially compression factors fractures in the spine because of the pressure of trying to hold up all the, of the vertebrae that all have these lesions in them and fractures of the ribs due to the fragility of the bones in the ribs again due to the lesions caused by contact with the myeloma masses 
Besides the ways that multiple myeloma affects bone, it also affects the body in other ways that I will mention briefly, but again, I really, now that we've got all the introductory stuff out of the way, I would really like to continue to make this podcast about the paleopathology, but I will mention that in individuals that do have multiple myeloma, we often see hypercalcemia, which is a fancy way of saying that there is more calcium in the blood than there should be or than normal. And this is due to the breakdown of bones. So when you have the osteoclasts coming in and breaking down the bone because the plasma cells, the multiple myeloma plasma cells are telling them to, you see bone being broken down and the stuff in our bones doesn't just disappear, it's broken down and then it is used elsewhere in the body. So all of that calcium that forms the inorganic part of our bones is just going to be released into the blood, which again will show up if you do a blood test and you will see that this person has hypercalcemia. Anemia is also really common with individuals with multiple myeloma, and this is mainly due to the fact that the bigger the multiple myeloma mass gets, the more it will crowd out the cells in the bone marrow that make red blood cells. So the bone marrow is a really important site for making red blood cells so that we can oxygenate our tissues. Unfortunately, if you have a malignant tumor, a multiple myeloma tumor in the bone marrow, this tumor is going to continue to grow out of control and crowd out the cells that make the red blood cells. So you're going to have an inc- a decreased, excuse me, decreased ability to oxygenate your tissues, um, resulting in anemia. Again, anemia is usually connected with fatigue. So fatigue can also be um, a trademark of multiple myeloma due to the poor production of red blood cells. Um, If the production of red blood cells gets extremely low, it can even result in marrow failure. The marrow is failing to do what it's supposed to be doing. Multiple myeloma can also um, cause rapid weight loss. And here's the kicker. It can often cause kidney failure, which is usually the cause of death if someone has multiple myeloma due to the accumulation of that M protein that I talked about earlier, that multiple myeloma plasma cells produce and release into the blood instead of the antibodies that they were normally supposed to be producing. So I told you that I would come back to the role of multiple myeloma proteins in multiple myeloma, and here it is. The multiple myeloma proteins created by these mutated plasma cells, these myeloma plasma cells, can accumulate into in the kidney and cause renal failure or kidney failure, and this is usually the cause of death for individuals with multiple myeloma. Next, we are going to get into how to detect multiple myeloma in human bone in the archaeological record. It's important to note that multiple myeloma is not the only type of cancer that can be identified in bones. There are two other main types of cancer that affect the bones in a way that may be a little bit similar to multiple myeloma and may cause some confusion um, for paleopathologists who are analyzing remains. Leukemia and also metastatic carcinoma, which is basically just a fancy way of saying there was a cancer of the epithelial cells that metastasized to bone. So metastatic carcinoma is a secondary tumor. Usually leukemia, multiple myeloma, and metastatic carcinoma are the three types of cancer that are often present in bones. Metastasis to the bone, so metastatic carcinoma, usually it's a carcinoma, but it can be other types of cancer, is the most common type of malignant neoplasm found in human remains. But due to its huge impact on the bone, multiple myeloma is the second most common type of malignant neoplasm to be found in the bones. 
Interestingly, the lesions caused by multiple myeloma, remember we talked about those small ovoid or circular lesions that are relatively uniform in size, 5 to 20 millimeters across, sharp and well circumscribed, circumscribed margins looked like, they usually look like punched out holes, like from a hole puncher. These characteristic lesions are so unique and so specific to multiple myeloma that we can usually easily distinguish between leukemia, multiple myeloma, and metastatic carcinoma through macroscopic analysis alone. Of course, this isn't always the case, but it's important to know that these lesions that multiple myeloma leaves on bone are extremely characteristic for multiple myeloma. If the lesions that we're looking at on the human bones that we are analyzing don't look exactly like they belong to, you know, specifically it was for sure leukemia, it was for sure multiple myeloma, or it was for sure metastatic carcinoma, we can look at how many lesions there are on the bone. Interestingly, leukemia produces lesions that are more plentiful than those caused by multiple myeloma, and metastatic carcinoma produces or metastatic carcinomas produce fewer lesions than multiple myeloma. If we still can't tell, there seems to be, you know, a relatively neutral number of lesions in the skeleton that we're looking at. Using the size of the lesions isn't super reliable because the lesions caused by leukemia, the lesions caused by multiple myeloma, and the lesions caused by metastatic carcinoma are, they vary in size. It can, there's a lot of overlap in terms of the size, but going back to how characteristic the lesions are for multiple myeloma, what distinguishes it from other lesions that would be caused by leukemia or metastatic carcinoma is the total absence of remodeling in, in multiple myeloma. It's also important to note that multiple myeloma lesions affect both the cortical and trabecular bone, which also helps us distinguish it from leukemia or metastatic carcinoma. So macroscopic analysis is going to be a huge part of how we detect multiple myeloma in human bone. When we see these characteristic lesions and we can rule out leukemia and metastatic carcinoma, there's also the possibility that we are looking at post-mortem damage if we see lesions in bone. However, this post-mortem damage that can be caused by rodents, um, fungal activity, algal activity, insects, root activity, we should consider that the lesions that we are seeing could be caused by this post-mortem trauma, but knowing how characteristic these multiple myelomal lesions are, it's pretty difficult to confuse these well-demarcated, smooth, circular lesions with post-mortem damage. So that is another factor to consider, but overall, Based on everything we've discussed, macroscopic analysis, when you're looking at remains that have lesions in them that are characteristic of multiple myeloma, based on the factors that we've talked about, that is a really important way of detecting multiple myeloma in human bone. It's also important to note that not all of the lesions can be seen macroscopically. So CT scans and x-rays are very, very helpful for seeing the lesions that haven't penetrated the cortical bone. It is often a crucial part of the diagnosis. And the reason that we would want to see, do an x-ray or a CT scan is if we were aware that the individual that we are looking at has one of the risk factors for multiple myeloma. So if we are looking at someone that is we identify to be a male 
then we and we identify them to be of a certain age and we sort of see something spunky going on in his bones but we can't really tell what it is it might be smart to do a CT scan or an x-ray even though they are costly and hard to access for some paleopathologists because this individual had several of the risk factors for multiple myeloma so if we do see that the individual has risks risks risk factors excuse me it may be well worth it to do an x-ray or a ct scan there are other technologies available to detect multiple myeloma in skeletal remains one of the studies that i read was about identifying multiple myeloma in the cranium of a medieval female using inhibition enzyme linked immunosorbent assay which is E-L-I-S-A, or ELISA, which is a technology that uses M proteins to confirm the diagnosis of multiple myeloma in a sample of an individual's skeleton. So we've kind of heard about these lesions that multiple myeloma makes, how to distinguish it from other types of cancer that we can find in bone, how we can tell that it is not post-mortem damage, where it is found. So we talked about that in the earlier section about which bones of the body it really affects. And that's, like I said, the highly vascularized um, parts of the body like the vertebral column, the skull, the femur, the ribs, the pelvis, the jaw, the clavicles, sternum, and humerus. And the last couple are if it's really severe. So I am now going to read a part of a case study from the International Journal of Paleopathology, and it's relatively recent. It's from 2020, and it is a case study of an individual from Bronze Age China. And the reason that I want to re read this case study is because it brings together a lot of the aspects that we, are, we have been talking about of how to detect multiple myeloma in bone. It talks about what the lesions look like, where they are, how big they are, and how they were able to determine that this individual from Bronze Age China did have multiple myeloma. So here we go. The authors write, multiple small, primarily circular-shaped osteolytic lesions with sharply demarcated margins were macroscopically observed in the axial skeleton, the hip bones, and scapulae. The lesions ranged from 1 millimeter to 8 millimeters in diameter. Some coalescing of lesions was observed primarily in the vertebrae. Vertebrae from the cervical, thoracic, and lumbar regions were affected. Due to the fragmentation of many of the vertebral bodies, it was not always possible to precisely identify the specific vertebra affected. No new bone formation or evidence of healing were observed surrounding the lesions. Lesions were located on the lateral borders of the scapulae, the coracoid process of the right scapula, the manubrium, the right hip bone, and the bodies and neural arches of the vertebrae. However, due to the state of preservation, the full extent of osteolytic lesions of the infracranial elements of this individual cannot be discerned. Radiography revealed additional lytic foci in the cancellous bone of the ribs and vertebrae, which were not identified macroscopically because the lesions had not yet penetrated the cortical bone. The radiographic images indicate more extensive destruction of the, the hematogenous bone compared with the cortical bone. This suggests that the marrow was the focal point of the disease. Imaging also confirmed that the skeletal lesions are osteolytic without sclerosis. 
Macroscopic and radiographic assessments indicate that the disease process in this individual is characterized by osteolytic activity with no evidence of new bone formation. The macroscopic and radiographic appearance of the observed lesions on these bones are consistent with multiple myeloma. So I hope you enjoyed that um, little excerpt from this case study from the International Journal of Paleopathology. I think it ties together a lot of the aspects that we've been talking about, the osteolytic lesions with no bone being formed back, um, the importance of using x-ray and radiographic analysis if the lesions have not penetrated the cortical bone, all of these things, and which bones the lesions can be found in. So I hope you enjoyed that. And next, we are going to discuss when and where to find multiple myeloma in past populations. So we've been talking about all of this background information on multiple myeloma, all about how to identify it in human remains, but where and when did these human remains that we were looking at live? Pretty much all over. Um, neoplasms, malignant neoplasms have been found dating all the way back to the beginning of our existence. They can also be found in the dinosaurs. Multiple myeloma specifically can also be found in dinosaurs. But when we're talking about humans, the current evidence that we have for multiple myeloma is all over the place. It's in Africa, Europe, Asia, North and South America, as well as one possible case from Australia. The earliest evidence for multiple myeloma in humans in the old world, quote unquote, which is a stupid way of saying Africa, Europe, and Asia. This oldest evidence comes from 4000 BC during the Neolithic period. So we have that is actually the oldest evidence that we have of multiple myeloma to date is from 4000 BC. And the earliest evidence that we have for multiple myeloma in the New World, which is a stupid way of saying North and South America, is from three for, I'm sorry from 3300 BC during the archaic period so multiple myeloma has been around on earth for a really really long time like I said the dinosaurs even had multiple myeloma it's been found in some of the dinosaur remains but in humans it's been around our our oldest case is from 4000 BC so it's been around for a long time and it was probably around even before 4000 BC but of course the older remains are, the harder they are to analyze, and it's way harder to identify any diseases that they might have had because there may not be much material left. Um, in the case of remains that are found in tropical regions, the soil acidity makes it really hard for bone material to be preserved over long periods of time. We also just don't have much access to human remains outside of you know, Europe and parts of North America and specifically Egypt, that has been a huge epicenter of, paleopatho of paleopathology and we're really limited in the amount and the remains that we can identify based on the focus that is placed on each area of the world. So the earliest evidence that we have being from 4000 BC is probably not when multiple myeloma first showed up in humans, it's just the only evidence that we have right now. But it is very, very, very likely that multiple myeloma has been around a lot longer than we currently think. 
It's also clear that neoplastic diseases were almost certainly present in the Americas before colonization by Europeans, hence the fact that multiple myeloma can be found in 3300 BC during the archaic period in the quote-unquote new world. There are also various studies that explain how common multiple myeloma was in prehistory, maybe even more common in the past than it is today. And we're not entirely sure why this happens, but so far, the remains that we have found that have multiple myeloma and the distribution of multiple myeloma across the world and across time has indicated that multiple myeloma was probably much more common in the past, especially in prehistory, than it is today. And now that we've kind of talked a little bit about where and when we can find multiple myeloma in the archaeological record and in past populations, I did mention a couple of biases in diagnosing and interpreting multiple myeloma um, when I was talking about how to identify a multiple myeloma in skeletal remains, and also uh, just now when I talked about where we find it and when we find it in the past. So I'm actually going to transition now into talking about some of the larger biases in diagnosing and interpreting multiple myeloma in the archaeological record from skeletal remains. And one of the most important things for paleopathologists to keep in mind is that bone has very few reactions. You can build new bone, you can take bone away, or you can have a combination of taking old bone away and building bone. And this is really important, especially for diagnosing and interpreting multiple myeloma, because developmental abnormalities, normal skeletal variation, other diseases, cysts, infectious diseases, and trauma, including culturally or medically prescribed trauma, can produce lesions that are similar to those created by neoplastic disease, like multiple myeloma. So we definitely need to be aware, specifically when we're diagnosing multiple myeloma, of the fact that bone has very few reactions. Luckily for us, the lesions that are caused by contact with myeloma masses, um, like we've been saying over and over again, are pretty darn easy to distinguish between other things, but it's still a really important bias to note because we may be looking at something completely different and because we really wanna find multiple myeloma, we will say that it's multiple myeloma even though it doesn't exactly match our, our criteria for diagnosing someone with multiple myeloma. Like I said earlier in when and where we can find multiple myeloma, we can only diagnose individuals with multiple myeloma if we have access to their remains. So the, ge the geographical distribution of multiple myeloma in the past is mainly focused in Japan, Egypt, Europe, and some spots in North America and South America. And again, this is due to just the fact that there are more paleopathological projects going on in these parts of the world. So our knowledge of the distribution of multiple myeloma in the past is really limited by the fact that we don't have access to every person who's ever lived that has had multiple myeloma and we never will because some of the individuals that have multiple myeloma like I mentioned earlier are not going to be around anymore their remains are not going to be around anymore especially when we talk about multiple myeloma the bones become 
absolutely compromised in their structural integrity. They become much more frail. They're much easier to break. So if you have someone that has suffered with multiple myeloma and passed away, their bones sit in the ground where they are absolutely under attack by everything in the environment that threatens to destroy the bones. So if the bones are destroyed or in the case of tropical regions, the soil is too acidic and the bones cannot continue to exist, then we're not even going to have access to the bones of that person because of the fact that they are so frail and they are so vulnerable to taphonomic damage. Um, It's really hard to say for us before the medieval period what the prevalence is because the older the remains are, the harder they may be to study. Um, Why I say the medieval period specifically is because in the medieval period we have this huge number of individuals that have been identified as having multiple myeloma, but we also have a really huge population of medieval skeletons to look at, so that's something to consider. We have a lot of medieval skeletons, but, and we sort of can kind of tell the prevalence in the medieval period and onward, but before that, it's really, really hard to find remains that we can study and that are able to give us you know, answers about what each individual had, they may be really, really hard to study and really hard to get any information from. Um, Another bias, especially in cancers, is that disease progression may not have had, may not have gone far enough to affect bone before the person died. So a person may have had multiple myeloma, but the mass wasn't reaching the bone before this person was killed by something else. So maybe they accidentally fell off a cliff or they... I don't know, got attacked by an animal or something like that, right? So in some way, their body was not able to form the lesions that are so characteristic of multiple myeloma, even though they had multiple myeloma, because their body was not given a chance to develop those lesions before they died. So that's another huge bias for multiple myeloma. Another one that's specific to paleopathologists and their research is that Analysis of the history and the prevalence of multiple myeloma in the past is really difficult for us to kind of glean from all of the prior paleopathological literature because some of these studies are decades old and they use now what we would consider to be unreliable estimates of age and sex. So it's really difficult for paleopathologists now who are looking at all the data for multiple myeloma throughout the archaeological record to create demographic information for multiple myeloma throughout time. So if you are saying that, you know, this individual, let's say it's, you know, 1980 and you're saying that you found this individual with multiple myeloma, but you identify it as being of the wrong sex or the wrong age, then now someone that's looking at multiple myeloma and trying to compile a general review of multiple myeloma is not going to have accurate demographics to report in their account. So the unreliable estimates from previous studies can also be one of the biases in forming a complete picture of what multiple myeloma looked like in the past. Um, The osteological paradox is another thing to consider for sure. The osteological paradox takes into consideration that those that have lesions may not be the sickest when compared to those that do not have lesions. Again, because of the bias that I talked about that says 
Your body needs time to accumulate lesions, and sometimes the longer you live with the disease, the more lesions you will have. But the fact that you are living longer, even though you have the disease and you're not dying from the disease, gives you the chance to form those lesions. So you would actually be uh, quote unquote healthier than someone that had the disease died right away so their body did not have time to make the lesions. The osteological paradox also considers that individuals don't necessarily die where they are born or where they are lived. Um, Populations are constantly changing. Populations that we study, like a cemetery population, doesn't always represent the population that existed at the time. It's, you know, usually cemeteries are just a snapshot of a couple of the people throughout time that were buried in that specific spot. So, you know, it's really, really difficult for us to tell, and the osteological paradox kind of helps us cope with a lot of these biases that are getting in the way of us having this complete picture of what multiple myeloma looks like in the past and how we can diagnose it. So the only other thing that I'll add to this discussion of biases and things that kind of hinder our research is, again, just mentioning that some neoplasms like leukemia and metastatic carcinoma can be confused with multiple myeloma, but as we talked about, there are ways of distinguishing between the different cancers. And in the next section, we are going to move on to why does this matter? What is this going to tell us about an individual? What is it going to tell us about life in the past? And what is it important to understand about multiple myeloma from the past that is going to help us understand multiple myeloma as it affects individuals today. Thank you so much for hanging in there with us. We are coming to the end of our podcast, but we still have a little bit more to discuss in terms of the implications of finding finding multiple myeloma in the archaeological record. So what does multiple myeloma tell us about an individual or about life in the past? The fact that we can find multiple myeloma in dinosaurs and in humans, so far as we know, um, from 4000 BC, tells us that neoplastic conditions, including multiple myeloma, are not due to modern lifestyle and increased longevity. They have afflicted humans since prehistoric times. You know, I think we talked about this in Dr. Grauer's paleopathology class of Everyone thinks that cancer is this modern disease, and it's because of human, human-made human carcinogens, and it's because we live longer, and it's because of all of these things. But in reality, we have been finding cancer in ancient populations for a very long time. So we know that cancer was around long before, you know, we had harmful solvents and, you know, human-created carcinogens. So we know that cancer was probably not due to modern lifestyle and and increased longevity. It's really interesting that we find multiple myeloma because we often underestimate the prevalence of cancer in past populations because there is just so much that we don't know and so many remains to study that we haven't found or so many remains that haven't made it. We could study them and gain information from them, but they are just in too bad of shape for us to get anything from them. And we also are definitely relying on technology more and more to tell us about these things. So we definitely have underestimated the prevalence of cancer in past populations just because we don't have enough remains to study that can tell us, yes, this was a very prevalent thing in the past, However, you know, that's the case with cancer as a general category, 
But like I mentioned earlier, multiple myeloma actually was more prevalent in the past than it is today, which is really surprising considering that most people think that cancer is a modern disease. I won't say most people. There is a population of individuals that believe that cancer is a modern disease and it's a modern affliction. So that's really interesting. And again, we're not entirely sure why multiple myeloma may have been more prevalent in the past, but there is definitely some more research that needs to be done to help us understand why this is the case. So multiple myeloma in the past tells us that Cancer has been around for a long time because carcinogens have been around for a long time and the mechanisms of cell cell replication and division and death and survival have been around forever. So of course there's going to be problems that are going to lead to that are going to lead to conditions like cancer. Another really important thing that cancer or multiple myeloma specifically, if we find multiple myeloma in an individual, could tell us is, again, multiple myeloma has to do with mutations that cause plasma cells, which are immune cells, to become cancerous. When we have overstimulation of the immune system, we could encourage the emergence of abnormal plasma cells that can lead to multiple myeloma. One of the studies mentioned that the relatively high prevalence of multiple myeloma in the past could be related to malnutrition and starvation, as well as high frequencies of chronic infections. So we don't know nothing about why multiple myeloma was prevalent in the past. We just don't know much more than that. So we think that maybe overstimulation of the immune system could lead to the emergence of multiple myeloma, and because starvation, malnutrition, and high frequencies of chronic infections were more common in the past than they are today, that could be why we are seeing this trend. The other thing that finding multiple myeloma could tell us about a population is that there may be some genetic susceptibility in the gene pool in that population that increases the prevalence. So if we wanted to figure out, you know, what genes, if there are genetic susceptibility, if there are susceptibility genes, excuse me, if we find members of a population that have multiple myeloma and it's relatively common, you know, we could potentially use their genes to describe these susceptibility genes for multiple myeloma. So finding multiple myeloma in a population could mean that there is susceptibility in the gene pool. Um, The only other thing that I was really thinking that multiple myeloma could tell us about an individual and tell us about life in the past could tell us about how the individual lived their life. They probably lived, if they lived long enough to have multiple um, myelomal lesions, then they probably lived with a lot of crappy symptoms. They probably had anemia, which we could look at in the bones um, if we see parotid hyperstosis and other bone reactions. They probably had hypercalcemia. They probably had fatigue. They probably um, could have potentially lost weight really fast. All of those other symptoms that I was talking about at the beginning. So this can really affect someone's ability to carry out their tasks because their bones are breaking a lot. They're tired all the time because they have poor oxygenation of their tissues. They could potentially be in a lot of pain or they could potentially be unable to contribute to the community in ways that they were used to contributing before. So this can help us kind of understand the impact that multiple myeloma had on an individual and on their culture 
cultural and social participation in the community. So, but again, you know, individuals, even individuals with really intense fractures or disabilities can still continue to contribute to a society or a community. So it can tell us about a little bit how about how an individual lived their life, but it may not necessarily tell us that this person was a non-contributing member of their society. It could just tell us that they were probably in a lot of pain while they were trying to carry out normal tasks that they would have been able to carry out with relative ease before they had multiple myeloma. So we are getting ready to head into the last little section here, and this is just about how understanding multiple myeloma in the past through paleopathology can help us understand multiple myeloma today. Thank you all so much for sticking around. We are back, and we are just about to wrap some things up. So understanding multiple myeloma in the past can actually help us maybe in the future understand the etiology of multiple myeloma. Like I said, we don't really know exactly what causes multiple myeloma. We know, of course, that like with most cancers, there has to be an accumulation of these mutations, but the mechanisms for how that happened, especially in multiple myeloma, are still kind of nebulous to us. So the more, the hope is that the more that we study multiple myeloma in the past, the more that the things that we're learning about how multiple myeloma affected individuals in the past will be able to tell us about what causes multiple myeloma and how we can treat it and how we know how to treat it based on the reaction of multiple of the body when it has multiple myeloma. Another thing that we hope to gain from studying multiple myeloma in ancient remains is to be able to identify the environmental genetic relationship that contributes to the onset of multiple myeloma. So again, the etiology and this relationship and this interplay between the environment and an individual's genetic information is still really unclear. And so we're hoping that by studying these remains, we are able to get a better idea of how this interaction plays an integral role in the onset of multiple myeloma. Um, Hopefully, it will also allow us to examine environmental conditions, subsistence strategies, and diets in past populations and how we can apply that information to our population of human beings on this planet today. So we know that there are no pesticides in prehistory. There are no man-made carcinogenic pesticides in prehistory. But if we're finding that multiple myeloma is present in prehistory when there were no carcinogenic man-made pesticides, then we can't blame carcinogenic man-made pesticides by themselves for multiple myeloma in the present. So hopefully understanding more about the conditions and the environments that these individuals that we are finding with multiple myeloma in the past will help us understand how we can apply that information to our current populations. And one of the final things that I wanted to discuss was that I mentioned earlier, there is some evidence that diet plays a role in risk for multiple myeloma. So we do have the technology now to kind of come up with an idea of what an individual that we find, whose remains that we find, what their diet was like based on the identification of different particles and microbes in the tartar on their teeth. So looking at their dental pathology, This can be really, really important for identifying dietary factors and risk for multiple myeloma if we find that this person with multiple myeloma that we have identified in the archaeological record may have relied on a specific food 
and maybe that was somehow contributing to their elevated risk for multiple myeloma. So there are a lot of really, really good areas of research in paleopathology surrounding multiple myeloma that can be really helpful for helping us to continue to understand, you know, how it affects the human body, what are the causes, what are the risk factors, and to help us move forward and generate treatments and creatively treat the disease and maybe one day have a cure. So that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for sticking with us until the very end for our first ever episode of Paleopathology with Pays, dedicated to the discussion of multiple myeloma. Just to kind of recap, we talked about the causes of multiple myeloma. We did a quick overview of what cancer is because multiple myeloma is a bone marrow cancer. We also talked about the risk factors for multiple myeloma, how the disease progresses, how it affects bone, how we can recognize that an individual that we have access to this individual's remains, how we can see that they had multiple myeloma and how we can distinguish it from other types of lesions. We also discussed why finding multiple myeloma in the archaeological record is important for helping us understand multiple myeloma today. We discussed how finding multiple myeloma in an individual can tell us about life in the past and in past populations. And we also talked about what some of the biases for diagnosing and interpreting multiple myeloma are, um, which are all really important biases in paleopathology in general. So Thank you again so much for sticking around until the end. I hope that you learned something new and I hope that you have a better understanding of multiple myeloma and how it relates to the field of paleopathology. Happy end of the semester, Dr. Grauer. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast and I absolutely loved this class and I cannot wait to work with you again in the fall. Um, So I will see you soon. Have a good summer.